Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me this week, having escaped from the mysterious photo booth, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Yeah, man, it's good. Glad to dodge that bullet, um, even yeah. though um, it was good to hear you two talk about The Good Gentleman. Um, yes. um, I very much love The League of Gentlemen, and it was good to hear about it, And uh, but also have the week off. It was nice. It was like a holiday, mm. but also getting to hear people talk about something I like. Yeah, thanks again to Jack Roden for coming on the show last week. That was a, a really fun conversation. And uh, yeah, it's been two weeks since you were last on, or seven Brooklyn Nine-Nine cancellations. Yeah, that was a um, a really dire, you know, 48 hours <laughs> tops. Um, yeah. it was, and it was, I feel, I feel really bad for like The Last Man on Earth and The Mick. Mm. Uh, two shows got cancelled by the same network at the same time, both of which ordinarily, if they'd have been cancelled on their own, probably would have seen more support, but because they were overshadowed by Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which, you know, is helped by the fact that it's one of the most likeable shows on television. Uh, mm. they, they're, they're both kind of just, um, you know, facing kind of quiet exit whilst Brooklyn Nine-Nine gets saved and, and kind of has, you know, many suitors falling over themselves to find it, uh, to save it and kind of put it on, on whatever channel it ended up. Is it NBC it ended up at? Yeah, it ended up at NBC. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it, with, you know, the guys who behind it did the office and Parks and Rec there, didn't they? Yes, and also it's actually produced by NBC, even though it airs on Fox. Is it really? Because... I didn't know that. Yeah, because and and Vo- uh, Vox Van- Vanderworth, <laughs> Todd Vanderworth at Vox had a good article about this. It's basically explaining why Brooklyn Nine Nine ended up coming back alongside Last Man Standing, the show no one was asking to come back, mm. but which has been revived by Fox. And essentially, it was all about how a little understood a- a- aspect of the TV industry in America is that networks and studios are kind of two separate things. So whilst you will occasionally get situations where a network will produce and air a show in a lot of cases a network will like produce the pilot for a show their own network will pass on it but then they'll just a studio will produce a pilot for a show their own network will pass on it and then it ends up playing at another network so something like modern family i believe is a fox production but it airs on abc and things like that and nbc passed on brooklyn 99 five years ago or six years ago whenever the pilot got shot and it just made a lot of sense from a kind of a corporate synergy angle for them to pick it up because they will also benefit more from any syndication deal that comes up you know one of the reasons why fox cancelled it even though it does kind of okay in the ratings and it's not that expensive for them to license it was just that it had already hit 100 episodes so there was less incentive for them to keep going they mm-hmm. were gonna the, the amount of money they were going to see from any syndication deal would be pretty minimal at this point whereas for nbc it's like yeah keep cranking out as many as possible uh and then like last man on earth even though that was produced and aired on fox i think it's just a way more expensive show because it's all shot on location and there's not really that many standing sets because mm-hmm. of the the entire premise of the show is that they constantly keep moving to different places Mm. And and bringing on big name guest stars who they kill almost instantly, which is uh, one of the the show's best running jokes. Mm. Um, and I mean, I'm happy to see Brooklyn Nine Nine carry on somewhere else. Mm. Um, I'm kind of rewatching it at the minute. My wife had never seen it and is now currently plowing through it at an alarming rate. And when I told her it'd been cancelled, it's like someone had just told her they could have a key to a sweet shop and then punch <laughs> them in the face. Um, <laughs> shortly afterwards. Um, so yes, I'm glad that the, you know we're going to see some more and spend some more time with those characters because, I mean the the, the kind of the groundswell of support for the show on I mean Twitter nearly exploded um, mm. at the idea that that Brooklyn Nine Nine would be taken off the air and the kind of arguments that people were making were that you know it's you know a genuinely good hearted show that manages to be very positive about lots and lots of kind of social issues and ideas of gender, masculinity, sexuality, all those things, and be like just completely cool about it. And 
you know, still be an incredibly funny network TV show, which is no mean feat. No, and it has probably just the most likable cast ever assembled. Uh, you know, it, you know, it's, it's very close with another Mike Shaw show, Parks and Rec, in that regard. But mm-hmm. like, pretty much everyone that show is just so is so much fun to watch, and they're all so. Uh, all the characters are so eminently likable, even the ones like Hitchcock and Scully, who are just there being kind of annoyances for everyone else. You know, everyone has is so well-defined. And at this point, certainly, you know, the, the fifth season finale ends tonight. They are all so well-developed and that you can really bounce pretty much any combination of characters off of each other and you're going to see something good. And those relationships are you know, at this point, fairly deep, you know, like the relationship between Holt and Peralta and their kind of like mentor-mentee kind of surrogate father-son relationship uh, is genuinely kind of very touching, even though, you know, coming from beginnings which seem to be like, seem to indicate that we're going to go in like a stereotypical, um, like young hotshot bristles up against, you know, the kind of the stodgy captain thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that Mike Shaw is uh, is really great at in all of his shows. Really, is taking what seem to very stock dynamics and really exploring them in cool and fascinating ways, and really deepening them. And uh, I'm glad that they are getting at least 13 more episodes in which to keep doing that. Mm. Is that the order? Is it 13 more? Yeah, 13 more. So it seems they seem very to be... conservative. Yeah, but I think uh, NBC are doing that with a lot of their sitcoms now. Like Good Place only does 13 a year. Mm. I think. They don't seem to be, or, or maybe it's just like an initial order, and then if it does well, then they'll they'll pick it up for the back nine, because it is, for all intents and purposes, a new show for them. Mm-hmm. Even though it's going to be coming in with a well seasoned creative team. Yeah. In other news, in in what we're dubbing the can and cancellation uh, segment of this week's news, very mm-hmm. much staking our claims as the modern Jane Austen. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of the many controversies and news that's come out of the Cannes Film Festival, which unfurled in the kind of the two weeks uh, between uh, regular episodes of this show. And uh, there was a there was a lot uh, that came out of it. Probably most of the talk, certainly online and, and amongst film Twitter, was the controversy surrounding Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, mm-hmm. which is an incredible, by all accounts, incredibly violent and bleak serial killer movie with Matt Dillon, which features a lot of violence and death involving animals and women and children and seems kind of fairly stock Lars von Trier fair really but really seemed to generate an incredibly vocal and polarized response between people who thought it was utterly reprehensible trash and people who said it was you know a, a, a master filmmaker working at the top of his powers and you know it and certainly my knowledge of Lars von Trier's work I kind of think well, it's probably it's probably mm. both sounds, <laughs> sounds about right yeah I mean it didn't sound like that different to most of the times that Lars von Trier has a film at Cannes you know between this and Antichrist you know which was made quite a uh, quite made a lot of waves when that came out over there back you know back in 2009 mm-hmm. you know it's what I found interesting about this was not that there was a controversy around a Lars von Trier film, because then it wouldn't be a Lars von Trier film, but just the fact that it seemed so much louder and more pronounced this time. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably to do with the fact that Lars von Trier is a bit of a twat, um, mm-hmm. and can is a great opportunity for twats to act like twats, but also get away with it. Yes. Because they seem to be indulged um, mm. in a way that, like, seems to give them everything they want. I mean, I'm sure the Lars von Trier and the people behind Lars von Trier's latest film are really thrilled with the reaction it's got from Cannes. I would be, I think they'd be hugely disappointed if it didn't get booed or people talk, telling them it was a disgrace and, you know, a, a kind of horrifying piece of filmmaking. But, I mean, you know, it's kind of getting a bit tired now. I think, like, you know, his some of his films are amazing, like Dogville or Breaking the Waves or something. They're incredible, but, like, it just seems to be the older he's getting and the kind of the longer his career goes, he just seems to be, like... I don't know, pushing people's buttons for the sake of it, it feels like, sometimes. Yeah, and it also seemed in uh, certainly a lot of the responses to it from the negative side, like, 
there and this then kind of got a lot of pushback from people being like oh so you don't think we should be able to make extreme movies you know you're going to censor this and it's like well no that's not what anyone's saying what everyone's saying is that they find this particular movie reprehensible they're not saying that reprehensible movies shouldn't be made mm-hmm. uh, or maybe some people are saying that like at the extreme ends of it but like Lars von Trier has always made very extreme movies certainly kind of like going back to like say breaking the waves or the idiots you know his movies are pretty much designed to get an extreme response mm-hmm. and no one makes a movie as kind of bleak and violent as the house that jack built is a, is meant to be obviously i haven't seen it but they don't make a movie like that expecting everyone to kind of like say wow that was fantastic mm-hmm. you know they, they want to see a very strong reaction to it and that's basically Lars von Trier's whole brand at this point is you know his him being like the the oldest enfant provocateur of you know of, of cinema essentially him and although I think uh, Gaspar Noé is probably more insufferable than him at this point just in terms of not not necessarily his work although Christ some of his movies but just in kind of his whole persona feels a lot more designed to irritate people than Lars von Trier who just kind of seems fairly kind of when he's not talking about Nazis or whatever uh, or whatever it was that he said that got him persona non grata by Cannes several years ago uh, always kind of comes off as fairly kind of like genial mm, yeah I, I kind of always think like you know Family Guy is not a very good TV show but, like, there's that one episode where they make a joke which is unsurprisingly unrelated to the narrative of the episode. Um, and they, they mention Tom Green, and it just cuts to Tom Green, who's hanging on the underside of a cow, like, <laughs> drinking milk straight from the other and looks at the camera and just says, do I still have to keep doing this? Um, and that's generally how I feel when I hear Gaspar Noe's name uh, mm. mentioned, because, um, you know, his films aren't really a great deal of fun to watch. Um, and I think he knows no. it. Yeah. Although apparently his latest one climax is meant to be not completely horrible mm, but not completely edwin, horrible edwin davis three and a half stars yep yeah. yeah. uh, so I'll, i look forward to uh seeing it show up on netflix and then say no <laughs> i don't think i will which is what i've uh i've done with his last film love for like the entire three years that it's been on netflix mm. every time it's like Really not in the mood. Yeah, I'll add it to my list and it will just be there gathering digital dust. Mm. I really hope people didn't accidentally watch that after listening to our episode on love. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> this isn't as funny as, as those guys said it was. <laughs> mm. Yeah, this this whole cast is very different and a lot more naked than they seem to suggest. Yeah, absolutely. In other can news, uh, the man who killed Don Quixote had another near miss of it not making it out into the world when there was some talk of one of the producers who had been involved in an earlier iteration of the movie threatening to sue them, the the production company. Amazon, I believe, withdrew their support for it, although maybe they come back at this point. It's kind of in a... Uh, I, I think Terry Gilliam tweeted something to the effect that Amazon was still on board, mm-hmm. but... Uh, and then seemed to suggest that the movie wasn't going to play, and then it ended up playing at the very end of the festival in order to basically uh, wait out to see what the the result of the court decision would be about whether the movie could be shown. And by all accounts, it exists, Mm. uh, which is, I mean, and that's got to be worth something after 20-something years of trying to get it made. Mm, I'm not going to be convinced... (laughs) Um, until I see it I think that I'm more convinced that the Gambit movie with uh, Channing Tatum is going to happen than Don Quixote Mm -hmm. is ever going to exist so you can try and pull the wool over my eyes by saying it showed it can but yeah don't think so Mm. I am I'm quite excited to eventually see it presumably if it still is being put out by Amazon it will show up on Prime at some point in the next year Mm -hmm. and mainly just because I want to see, you know, a new Terry Gilliam work, and I want to kind of see, you know, if it was all worth it. By most accounts, it isn't. Like, there are some people who really disliked it, but most people, and some people who absolutely loved it, um, Bill Gay Ibiri from The Village Voice said that he he thought it was great, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he's a great critic. And, you know, I really hope when I do watch it, I like it. I haven't watched a Gill- I haven't uh, liked a Gilliam film in quite some time since, I don't know, Maybe Tideland. I mean, I don't know if I liked Tideland, but at least it was it was distinctive. Yeah, it was it was something. And I'm not sure if 
you know, I think the the problem with the man who killed Don Quixote at this point is like obviously it's this great wonderful obsession of Terry Gilliam's and you know the fact that he's been trying to make it for so long has this added resonance to the story of Don Quixote anyway but there's always that sense of like maybe he's not as good a filmmaker now and maybe he's not gonna make a maybe Terry Gilliam in 2018 is not gonna make as good a movie as Terry Gilliam in like 1998 could have Mm. yeah it's that whole thing isn't it about if you watch the Lost in La Mancha documentary, there's that moment after everything he's going through and he turns to the camera and is just like, I just don't know if I can make this film now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the moment for it's gone. And there's always that suspicion that the moment was gone. It'd been washed away with some kind of flood or, you know, some other act of God. And whatever we get is going to be just someone getting it over the finish line rather than what could have been, you know, like when Gilliam was operating at the height of his powers or what that film could have been. Mm. Um, and I think no matter how good it is, we'll always wonder how good it could have been. Yeah, yeah. Especially because there are so many potential versions of it that exist. Like when you look at the, you know, the obviously the, the original with John Rochefort and Johnny Depp back, you know, when he was trying as mm-hmm. opposed to now where he's trying in a different way. And <laughs> then like, even like a couple of years ago, you know, there was talk of Michael Palin playing Don Quixote and then John Hurt was attached and then he got cancer, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was like the real, you know, obviously it was incredibly sad that he, he was ill and eventually passed away. But when that happened and they were like uh, delaying production, it was like, really, this was foretold once, once he signed on <laughs> that something was going to happen to him because people just didn't have any luck and you know jonathan price is getting up in years so i think he's he's probably not going to live uh for much longer you know he's defied god by being in the man who killed don quixote mm. is it adam driver's in it as well yes which is another reason why i'm very excited i think he's he's a great actor and at this point a real step up from johnny depp so i am very very excited to see what he does with the character mm. yeah that's fair and also, you know, it's Cannes at the end of it. They hand out a bunch of prizes, including giving the Palm Door to Shoplifters, the new movie by Hirokazu Koreeda, who's a Japanese filmmaker, directed films like Still Walking, which is probably one of the best films of the last 10 years. Uh, and Like Father, Like Son, you know, these beautiful, really achingly humanistic dramas of, you know, kind of family life in Japan. And this one, by all accounts, is like, even more beautiful and humanistic than any of the others so i'm very excited about that but also you know there was um there was a lot of controversy before the festival started about netflix being essentially blacklisted from it and then formally withdrawing because they said that they weren't going to give any of their movies kind of a theatrical release and you know that whole contrafab between them and the the festival and then they kind of leapt in at the end and as soon as the rewards the awards had been announced they said they were going to buy up two of the winners to distribute them one of them called girl which uh, i believe won a award for kind of like uh, queer cinema and then happy as lazaro which won one of the best screenplay nominations uh best screenplay awards and uh, if nothing else that is quite a power move on the part of netflix mm-hmm yeah yeah there was also quite a lot of um, kind of controversy, or well, controversy, I guess, but like there was some very pointed political moments, mm-hmm. um, especially with the Me Too movement. Yes, yeah. Asia Argento in particular, you know, talking about how Cannes was essentially Harvey Weinstein's hunting ground. Uh, for, for many, many years, he would go there and be kind of like fated by all of the people who wanted him to produce their movies and then, you know, using it to prey on actresses as a result. And then uh, just in the last couple of days, there was also uh, accusations leveled against Luke Besson, who wasn't, I mean, he's not exactly kind of a Cannes filmmaker, but I think he's probably shown his face at the festival a few times. So uh, it was good to see that that message is being kind of like, and, and the movement is being carried on and it's not, kind of dropping off the radar as it as it often as has often been kind of like the worry with all the reckoning against kind of instances of 
sexual assault and harassment in the in the film and television industry even as there are also stories about you know people like louis ck and charlie rose and matt lauer all kind of like planning a comeback and being profiled in like the new york times and it's like mm, yeah really don't think you should be giving those guys the time of day mm, yeah i agree and also solo debuted at the Cannes film festival Cannes has this kind of tradition of having at least one kind of big hollywood production just show up outside of competition to add a little bit of glitz and glamour to the whole thing and by all accounts it's pretty decent which uh, is nice to hear, or most accounts, obviously, there's people at either end of the spectrum, again, with like man, with like the man who killed Don Quixote, and it's, that's really about the only point you're ever going to hear a comparison between those two. Although I guess they both had fairly difficult productions, but I think the man who killed Don Quixote has, has so low beat. But by, uh, by most accounts, it's pretty decent and, you know, about as good as one could expect given everything that went on behind the scenes uh which you know i'm looking forward to it because you know i i enjoy i just enjoy star wars movies and it seemed fun to me but it's nice to hear that apparently it's not a complete and utter disaster yeah it's i mean we're gonna do an episode on solo next week i think if we yep. can both get to see it i'm seeing it on thursday and my, we were we booked tickets a couple of weeks ago, and none of me and my friends were particularly mm. excited about going. It was more a kind of like, could we see the damage limitation exercise uh, that yeah. came out? But from all accounts, it appears that you they pulled it out of the bag. Uh, in mm. not, I mean, no one's saying it's you know fucking vertigo or anything, but <laughs> you know the people are like, actually, it's you know an enjoyable romp. Which, if someone said to me, what would you like from a movie about Han Solo? I'd say, I don't need a movie about Han Solo's origins, thank you. But if you do make one, make it an enjoyable romp. Mm, yeah, um, I mean, if it's going to be inessential, which I would argue it is, mm-hmm. because that was also the case with basically the all of the Han Solo books that were published as part of the Expanded Universe many years ago, none of them ever felt like anyone needed to read them, but at least they were fun. And, like, that is a very low bar to clear, but it seems like it would be good if, after all of the kind of, like, drama and the extensive reshoots that occurred for it, that the movie ends up being, you know, fun. Mm, Yeah, that's all we can hope for. So the main topic for this week's episode is director's cuts, although really that's just a thinly veiled excuse for us to talk about Arrested Development, Mm -hmm. uh, which is is a, a recurring theme of this show, because... A few weeks ago on May the 3rd, I believe it was, Netflix announced that they were going to release a new version of the fourth season of the of Rest of Development, which came out originally five years ago on Netflix. And we did a whole episode on about it if people want to hear what we thought at the time. Although I think our thoughts on it have probably soured a little bit since then. I mean, I don't think we were massive fans of it, but yeah, I think neither of us are quite, quite high on the fourth season that we got five years ago. But they for the entire pretty much the entire time people have talked about the idea of re-editing arrested development season four to more closely mimic the tone and pace and just general aesthetic of the original series because the whole thing with the fourth season because they were trying to because essentially because they couldn't get the cast all together in the same room all that often because they're all incredibly in demand and very hard to work their schedules around they had this conceit where every episode of the season would focus on a single character a single member of the blue family and then you know other actors would kind of flit in and out but for the most part you would spend all your time with one character and like new characters who are being introduced for the show and from pretty much the beginning everyone was like well i wonder if you could do a version of this that played better by just mimicking the traditional look of the show and then in 2014 Mitch Hurwitz said that he was working on a re-edit and you know they were going to recut the whole thing into 22 minute episodes and then two years ago in July of 2016 he said that he'd finished it but he didn't know when it was going to be seen and so we finally have it you know we have what's called fateful consequences the kind of the subtitle that they've given to the new version of season four and Matt, as someone who I know has 
decidedly mixed feelings about the fourth season of Arrested Development. What do you think about how this re-edit has, has come together? Does it does it work? I, full disclosure, haven't seen it all. Um, mm-hmm. But, the f- I mean, there's a lot of voiceover... <laughs> Mm-hmm. There's a there's an awful lot. It, the whole thing, I kind of there's something that didn't sit right with me for the you know. I think I've seen ten episodes now. The thing that mainly didn't feel like I you know didn't feel like I was watching Arrested Development is the whole thing felt like a recap, right? Like yes. the whole thing, and you know there just didn't seem to be enough like Arrested Development in the present. It all seemed to be. Michael was X, Y, Z doing this, 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 a cup to five minutes of explaining everything that, that then precedes the two minute scene. Mm. Um, and it still felt, I mean, it, it felt more like Arrested Development, like you said, cause it was squeezed into the, to the, uh, the, the kind of normal running time, but it doesn't really help rein in the preposterous bloated story that that is the spine of Arrested Development Season 4. For example, today I got to episode, like, six or seven, I think, and it was like, ah, Michael has moved into George Michael's college dorm in Phoenix, and I was like, shit, Michael Sarah's in this? Like, (laughs) Like, he has not been in this, apart from briefly in the first episode, and I've kind of forgotten that he's in it. Then I was like, oh, shit, Lindsay's just met, like, the guy who, like, lives in a tree who can't see faces. But hang on, doesn't she date Terry Crews at some point in this series? <laughs> and then there's an ostrich living in their house. Then, hang on, isn't Isla Fisher in this at some point? And doesn't she date Michael? And I was just like, there's so much to happen <laughs> in this mm. show. And it, it was just always, I think the fourth season of Rush Development, it was always, always, always a compromised proposition because mm-hmm. it wasn't like, let's make the best TV show we can with this material. It was, I can't get all the actors together. Let's try and work around it. And the whole thing just doesn't work. Yeah, I think I've, I finished the fourth season yesterday, the, the remixed version. And I think my kind of overwhelming thoughts on it is that on an episode to episode to basis it is more satisfying than the original version because there's just so much more kind of a pop to it even in the you know the the constant voiceover and they lean a little too hard on the recurring joke of ron howard just saying in voiceover what the characters are already saying in the scene Mm -hmm. which is something they do a few times and one time like he says after saying verbatim what they're saying on screen, he kind of goes, or something like that, uh, which is is funny. But then they also do it, they do it so often that it stops being a joke and just kind of an annoyance. And also, it, I don't know if it's just like my, the sound on my TV, but it sounds like it's very poorly mixed. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's very hard to kind of pick up on lines of dialogue and it's not in that kind of like, oh, you know, Arrested Development's so dense, you know, they have all these jokes going on and you have to watch it over and over and pick it up. It's literally just like, I can't hear what that person is saying, so I don't know what that joke was. Um, it's not quite, uh, It's not just kind of like a, an esoteric re- reference to something that you will only get if you've watched the whole thing like four times. It is just like, wait, what? I don't have a clue what's going on. And so that I think that on a kind of a a basic craft level i think there are just elements of it that feel shoddy because of how the thing has been assembled kind of post you know in post-production post-post-production essentially mm-hmm. but i think the bigger problem and, and you alluded to it is that it's very hard to tell what the story is anymore mm-hmm. because the you know it for all their problems, the old structure for the episodes, it was kind of still possible to tell in what time period each story was taking part in. Cause it does cover like five years, basically from the end of the season three up until the events of season four. But every time now, because it is this kind of like a jumble of things that is jumping around, it never really gives you a sense of when all of this stuff is actually happening. And then, you know, as as it goes along, and particularly once it gets to the final three episodes, which is basically all of the events of Cinco de Quatro mm-hmm. happening all at once, 
uh, that feel that's the only point at which it kind of becomes cohesive and you can kind of see all of the plot strands but I couldn't help but think that if I hadn't already seen season four in its original form and kind of knew where it was going, I would have absolutely no idea what was happening on an episode to episode basis in terms of like the meta plot. And yeah, like the episodes that now exist, these 22 minute episodes, even though they are kind of fun. And I think that Hurwitz has done as good a job as possible of putting all of this stuff together in kind of an accessible form it a lot of the time it doesn't feel like any of the episodes are built around like a key idea or story that can hold it together in the way that you know old arrested development was because they weren't structured that way so some episodes like towards the end of the season when they start to really dig into the job and the tony wonder stuff which i think is really funny mm-hmm. um particularly the way it builds up to the point in which they have sex with each other wearing the masks of each other's face, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is such a is such a kind of like a ludicrous thing, but the the way they build up to it works really really well. Spread kind of sprinkled over multiple episodes, and also is 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 responsible for one of my favorite gags, which is when Job goes to see Tony Wonder's show, and at the end of it, he goes, "And now for my greatest trick, everyone's gay." Mm-hmm. And then Ron Howard in voiceover says. It was easy to see how he did it. They were already gay, <laughs> which is like is a is a lovely case of example of what the show does well. It just feels, for the most part, like these episodes are just you know a what they essentially are, which is an attempt to craft these ungainly, this ungainly kind of like mound of footage into something that you can then like syndicate out to regular TV channels. Hmm. It. it, it... Director's cuts and alternate versions are rarely shorter. Mm. But if one thing could have benefited from being shorter, it could have been perhaps the Arrest of Element season four. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not entirely sure whether it might be the whole House of Cards issue. Not the TV show House of Cards, but the idea <laughs> that if you remove one bit, like it 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 doesn't work anyway, but it will just would just crumble and be um, you know, too ungainly even though it's so ungainly like they go to India (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's, I mean like I said it's compromised to the point of trying to squeeze everyone together when they couldn't be and it actually pushes the whole thing and spreads it like not enough butter over too much toast Mm. and ultimately no one wants dry toast Mm. and well, I still, I still think it's like an entertaining season of television, and I did enjoy watching it. Yeah, I, I did walk away from it thinking, yeah, I really don't know if I want this. Like, I don't know if really that season would ever have worked in any th- form. I guess if you know they had been able to do this same story but plan from the beginning for it to be twenty two twenty minute long episodes Mm -hmm. then yeah that would work but yeah i think even in this kind of like hash together form it doesn't really amount to much other than something that is kind of like often pretty funny but you know on a narrative level just feels like a complete mess Mm. even if there are things in it where i watch it i think oh that is really funny i do enjoy seeing these characters again but uh, it hasn't it hasn't dampened my hopes about the fifth season, which, uh, by all accounts, is following the following the traditional Arrested Development model from the off. Which I think this and knowing that going forward, I think it makes this whole experiment really interesting as a case of a creator going in and doing this vast audacious restructuring of their work in a way that most directors cuts or or special editions or whatever don't usually bother with pretty much just because they know fundamentally deep down that what they tried the first time didn't work Mm. which is an interesting thing to see admitted if not you know vocalized in such a high profile way Mm. like most like director's cuts or re-edits exist because for reasons um, that kind of are variously complicated, um, final cut or creative control might have been wrestled away from 
people involved and 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 they've kind of revisited it like much later and reconstructed it the way they wanted it but it's always oh someone else made it bad i'm gonna make it better this is very Mm. much is a case of oh we fucked this up (laughs) let's try and polish this turd uh to a bright shine and yeah that's quite unusual Mm. or it's you know things like the a lot of james cameron's movies that would get different versions they wouldn't be called director's cuts they'd be called special editions because essentially he would say except for you know piranha 2 Mm. that all of the movies of his that got released are basically what he wanted like there's none of them that he would look at and say yeah i was particularly once he became a huge success there's nothing that he would look at and say oh no they they fucked that up I, i need to fix it it'd be more you know looking to the home video market and wanting to put extra stuff in because that would entice people to watch it Mm. you know so that's why you get like the aliens special edition doesn't really it's not like his preferred cut it was just like we're putting out a quadrilogy box set what can we kind of like put in that you had to cut you cut out the first time it's like well you can put in that bit with the automatic guns i guess that is Um, a cool bit though to be fair it is a cool bit that is really it's unnecessary it's just cool yeah yeah, or Ridley Scott, who is is probably the man who's most synonymous with director's cuts because he he's done it a bunch of times. You know, Blade Runner being the the most notable example where there's like I think eight different cuts of that, and at least three of them can be counted as like director's cuts of his or like his what was his preferred cut at the time. Um, but you know, you look at the aliens, the sorry, the Alien director's cut, which is also on the quadrilogy box set, was. Mm-hmm pretty much just banged together because they wanted an extra version of it to put on the box set to entice people to buy it. Mm -hmm. You know, all he did was cut a bunch of atmospheric kind of shots of corridors out and then put in a handful of extra scenes. It wasn't like he was saying like, oh, I'm going to fix this stuff because, you know, I wasn't able to do it at the time. He was perfectly happy with Alien, which he should be. It's a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. But he, you know, they said to him, you know, what, what would you do if you were going to like, make a few changes now is that well i guess i'd tighten it up a bit which you know this is a valid approach to it but not necessarily indicative of him saying oh this is kind of like a this fulfills a deep deeply felt creative urge that i've had since 1979 Mm. it's a lot of the kind of special edition or director's cuts um, bear out that idea that Stanley Kubrick or someone said that I will paraphrase, which was something like, like a film's never finished, it's only abandoned. Mm. And that, you know, an artist will perhaps keep tinkering with it as long as they're allowed to, essentially. And I guess no one's been more guilty of that than George Lucas. Yes, yeah. Uh, both in terms of the, the Star Wars movies and also... THX one one three eight, which he has tinkered with a few times, mm. and I think it's it's where he's one of the foremost people who kind of has he labours under the the, the kind of uh, the idea that people like the movies because the special effects, and that mm. if he goes back and takes the old special effects and shines them up, people like the movies more, which is yeah. not really the case. And the kind of antithesis to this is the the special edition or the, the, the anniversary edition of E.T. where they yeah. kind of reinserted a digital E.T. and they kind of digitally replaced guns with walkie-talkies in the wake of, was it like 9-11 or something that after that? Like, I don't know why, what it was that, that kind of caused that. Yeah, uh, it would have been, yeah, it would have been 2002. Yeah. So yeah, I guess in reaction to that and just violence in general in the media, I suppose. Where yeah. I know Spielberg has since said that he was, he regrets that and they took it out in all the subsequent editions. Yeah, that, yeah. That's why I'm kind of like suggesting that Steven Spielberg is someone who perhaps might be interested in redoing some of his older films with newer special effects, but he reacted negatively to the, the version of E.T., which, you know, I don't know what kind of pushed him to do that or what, what kind of, uh, what the driving force was behind that. But like, I'm just glad that it's never been done to like Jaws or something because, you know, let's be honest, uh, it's one of my favourite movies of all time. Um, mm. Some of the shark shots look terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah. It looks like a rubber shark being waved out of the water, um, unconvincingly on a crane. And that could be the easiest film 
in the world to go and redo the special effects on, and they've never been tempted to do it, despite the fact that it's had about 900 uh, home video releases that you know people keep buying, like myself, and they could probably milk more money out of people. But that's something that, if George Lucas had directed it, you know, would have been uh, completely altered and redone by now. Another filmmaker who I find it interesting in how they have decided not, or they have opted, I guess, not to redo some of their old work is uh, Robert Zemeckis, mm-hmm. because I remember when the Back to the Future trilogy came out on DVD, they had a, what they billed as an audio commentary on the first film, but it was just basically a feature-length talk with Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, his uh, co-writer, on the movies, and they they were having a bunch of questions. I think this, uh, but they were asked a bunch of questions, and, and this was around about the time that the whole E.T. controversy was kicking off, and they asked them specifically, you know, like, you know, you can see during like the big finale with the, the the DeLorean like driving down the street, you know, you can occasionally see like wires hanging down, which are not part of the scene. They're just like stuff that ended up accidentally being in the movie. And they said, you know, would you ever, you know, think about when retouching this for re-releases, would you ever think about removing that? And, and they both said, well, no, of course not. You know, that's the movie that exists now. We don't want to kind of tamper with it. We don't want to mess with people's, you know, memories because by taking things out that are part of the movie that they love, even though, you know, they would, they'll, you know, happily have people retouch it and make it look nicer. You know, uh, ultimately when you are going in and making the effects better or removing mistakes or whatever, you are in some way kind of playing with the essence of the movie because like you say, movies are just kind of abandoned at a certain point and you just kind of have to make do what goes out into the world. And, you know, sometimes you end up with something like Apocalypse Now, which in its original version is pretty much amazing. You know, it, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, it is pretty incredible. And when Francis Ford Coppola went back to kind of toy with it and add stuff in for the redux, uh, it became apparent that even though he took, what, two years to edit it? Mm-hmm. Uh that was enough. <laughs> if if he had been left to tinker with it more, uh, he would have created a, a slightly worse film. Yeah. The Redux one is an interesting kind of case because a lot of the... There's a big difference between remastering something um, mm. and re-editing it and changing it. The essence of Apocalypse Now is fundamentally changed in the Redux version, but in the kind of remastered re-release that kind of just like polished the sound, polished the image, didn't change anything in a significant way. That was perhaps one of the most satisfying cinematic experiences I've had seeing that on the big screen, finally. Mm, yeah, I think I saw that um, and at the showroom. And yeah, I saw the showroom yeah, as well. It was pretty great. I think, I think there, there, is a, there is a decent argument for, for that, like, you know, going back and remastering your old work is something that, kind of can be an act of film preservation. There's mm. the the big red one, the Samuel Fuller movie, um, yeah. got a big reconstruction in, in the 2000s, the film that was made, I think, in about 1980, 1981, and kind of just disappeared after a while. People liked it because it was Sam Fuller, but Control had been wrested away from him, and they did a big re-release of it in the 2000s. And you watch it, and then you kind of there's a documentary on the DVD that goes along with it, and like they just completely redid the sound, added new sound effects, not Dolby 5.1 that wouldn't have existed at that time, just keeping in kind of uh, staying in keeping with what would have been available, but just kind of finishing the film that he couldn't, he didn't have the means to, and again now that film exists preserved for people who want to see it in 50 years who. Um, had it not happened, that reconstruction, which was all, all done from like his notes that he had compiled um, that were essentially a litany of complaints he had against the studio, <laughs> like cut it to pieces, that exists now in his, probably as near as you're going to get to his preferred vision. On the flip side, something like the reconstructed version of Pat, Gar- Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is <laughs> way worse <laughs> than what the studio butchered. And then Sam Peckinpah's... Uh, extensive notes on what the film should have been like weren't quite nearly as good as as what the studio pulled apart, even though it's nearer to 
his artistic vision, which is a kind of a weird mm. one because it is kind of it's more unwieldy and there's it's got like a strange energy and and kind of a rhythm to it that doesn't quite match the elegaic uh, original cut, which wasn't his. It's a weird one. You're like, whose is it at that point? And yeah, maybe Sam Peckinpah's original idea for it wasn't great, and perhaps. Uh, having it taken off him was a good idea. I guess I don't know either version well enough to make that claim, but I certainly enjoyed the original more than the reconstructed version. Mm, it's kind of like when they did that re-release of Let It Be, where they called it Let It Be Naked. Yeah. Um, they they stripped out all of the Phil Spector production because I think, was it Paul who didn't like the original production? I think Presumably. it was, yeah. I mean, he's the one that's alive, so presumably he would be the one that mm. would want to put out the newer version. But, uh, yeah, like, John Lennon really wanted to work with Phil Spector, and they brought it on, and they gave it all of this kind of, like, wall of sound, kind of lush production in the background of, of a lot of their songs, and Paul McCartney was never that happy with it. And so they put out this version that was kind of the raw audio with a lot of the... with everything pared down. And there's that situation where it doesn't, it doesn't really improve any of the songs. You know, mm-hmm. they were all. I mean, Let It Be is not the like exactly the best Beatles album anyway. But you know, it was it was very much a case of like, yeah, I don't know, maybe the instincts of the kind of the the flawed process that went in that went into making the album in the first place were the right ones. You know, they produced something that was better than this kind of slightly drearier version that we got thirty something years later. Mm, true. And in terms of reconstructed films, you also have obviously the the kind of the big one would be something like Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles movie, which mm. was he shot and you like pretty much all of his movies except for Citizen Kane. The studio fucked with it, and you know they cut it down to like a eighty or ninety minute version to show it as a like a the second half of a double bill in drive-ins and stuff. So this this kind of really haunting crime epic that he had constructed you know was completely destroyed and then in the 90s you know walter murch and uh, a bunch of other people took the 40 page memo that that wales had written saying like this is you know you know to the studio essentially saying like i've seen the cuts you've made this is what i would suggest you would do to you know fix it uh, and then they basically followed that, those notes as closely as they could from the footage they had available and reconstructed the movie to get it as close as possible, not to Wells's original version, because that, you know, that doesn't exist outside of when he first screened it and then the studio took it away from him, but as close to the saved version that he was trying to help the studio make and they kind of ignored him. Mm, yeah. It's kind of isn't it weird to to think that someone who struggled so much to get their vision of the uh, film out there never lived to kind of experience it and just had to live knowing that that imperfect version that people knew was not what they wanted and the mm. inter- you know I wonder if like with the advent of DVD and extra things and you know the internet and different models of distribution whether that is going to become rarer and rarer with artists being able to find an outlet for some of their stuff I think you know the idea that it's not going to happen but like we could see what remained of the Lord and Miller version of Han Solo I think Disney will mm. probably keep that very close to their chest but the idea that in 50 years time for the 50th anniversary of the Han Solo movie coming out we might see some of it you know it could exist people can reconstruct things online from many sources we've seen you know the Hobbit movies the the dreary dreadful like Peter Jackson trilogy uh, wholly unnecessary trilogy of movies about the Hobbit like you know within Days of the Blu-rays being released, there was a four-hour cut of, you know, the nine hours of film that, that exists had been kind of pared down to still quite a kind of unwieldy piece of film, but certainly a lot more palatable than what was released in cinemas. And, and fan edits exist. There's, I went, I think, a few years ago, 
I think when I was looking for the uh, the, the the Tolkien edit, I think it's called of the Hobbit. Mm. That there is like people have just like, and I think it's great that people have access to the tools to do this, whether the legality <laughs> bears up or not. That people are like, oh, I've I've re-edited Max Payne with less violence in, or I've you know recut this film to make it funnier, or you know, and people are just doing it as experiments because they can and sticking them online, and then people are watching fan edits and going. Oh, cool! Or I've mashed up two separate films; they're kind of running concurrently. Or I've re-edited. Uh, was it Toe for Grace re-edited all the Star Wars prequels into an eighty-eight-minute film? It was, yeah, yeah. And if Toe for Grace can do it, <laughs> anyone can. But it's kind of interesting to live in that world where you know I can have the access to the footage at the highest possible resolution that can be uploaded onto my computer and can start hacking it up and doing whatever I want with it, not for wide distribution, obviously, because I'm pretty sure I'll get a cease and desist from somewhere. Mm. Um, but the idea that you can make that, I've actually kind of thought about this because I have a bit of beef with the Lord of the Rings extended editions yeah. in that it's nice to see some of that stuff in there that's been added back in. And for years, all I've done is watch the extended versions. And then the last time I watched the trilogy, I watched the cinematic versions, and they are just so much more concise. Um, and some of the scenes where they have it, it's not like a new scene they've added, they've just padded the scene out with like little character beats or whatever. You know, you really do not miss them. And when you see them again, you realise that they actually kind of break the film up for not really uh, much net gain. But then I've kind of thought, well, my own personal version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy would probably include some of those moments from the extended version, but then other bits I would lose. And then I kind of thought, well, I live in a world where I could do that if I wanted to. When I was growing up watching, you know, the Star Wars movies on VHS taped off the TV, that's not an option. No, I think the Lord of the Rings are a really good example of the, you know, the the the, the idea of like a director's cut not really being a director's cut in that Peter Jackson always said that he thought the theatrical versions were good mm-hmm. and he was happy for them to be considered like the canonical version. And then like the extended ones were really just, you know, okay, we filmed a lot of stuff and a lot of it's about like building the world. And we think it'd be fun to kind of put it out there in the, into the, into the ether. But then it also kind of collides with the fact that the early two thousands was, pretty much the peak of home media in terms of people just buying DVDs and getting really obsessed with special features and making ofs and things like that before, you know, the economy collapsed and the people just stopped buying physical media in the levels that they had before. And that was the kind of the perfect combination of those two things was them saying, hey, this would be a fun thing to put out and people being like, yes, I will pay £60 for the extended four-disc version of Lord of the Rings. Thank you very much. You know, mm. and I think that's it's really interesting to kind of think that those two trends kind of really collide there because I think that's also why you see like Oliver Stone putting out the director's cut of Alexander or Ridley Scott putting out the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, both movies which did very badly at the box office. Kingdom of Heaven, I think, critically was probably more well liked than Alexander, which kind of famously was pretty widely derided, but that feels like something that you wouldn't really get now because there wouldn't be so much of a financial imperative for studios to say, okay, you know, you go and tinker around and maybe put out your version and we'll put it out and we'll sell a few extra units. Uh, It feels like maybe you would be more likely to get a situation where a filmmaker would just release their cut, like just out into the world, you know, if they could arrange it with the, with the studios and things like that, just basically say, I'll just, you know, just put it out and release it digitally. Why not? It just mm. seems like that would, because that's the only way you'll be able to get people all that interested in it at that point. Mm. I suppose a good, well, a bad advert for this kind of thing is, you know, the guys who really want to see the Snyder cut of, uh, <laughs> of Justice League, yeah. um, as if you could in any way improve that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it almost kind of makes me want the studio to be like, all right, okay, here it is. And then they'll be like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we were wrong. Yeah, although I think in that case, it probably doesn't exist, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, with knowing what we know now. Yeah, like he was probably 
out of it uh, before he could finish a version of it. Like, there wasn't some pristine version that Joss Whedon then came in and, like, mucked around with. It was like he was working with incomplete stuff and he had to finish it. No, yeah, it sounded very much like Joss Whedon was, um, you know, Donald Glover walking into the room with the pizza. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's a... <laughs> Uh, kind of do his, you know, do his best, I guess, to kind of to kind of bail them out. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to get like again an awesome world thing. You're not going to get the other side of the wind in like twenty or thirty years' time. They'll someone will come along and say, okay, like Netflix have given me ten million dollars to restore this. I'm going to take all the footage I can get, maybe film some new stuff with I don't know the backs of people's heads, so that you know they can't see that it's different actors and it's forty years later. Uh, and then, you know, kind of construct something that way. Mm. Although it probably would be technologically easier to do that now than with the other side of the wind, which I think also may have played at Cannes. No, I think it, it must not have played at Cannes because people would be talking about it more. It was meant to play at Cannes. But where, you know, there it's probably a lot harder to seamlessly CGI people in. Uh, everyone will just look like, again, to take it back to Arrested Development, Henry Winkler in his sailor suit, where... Um, I don't know if that was in the original version or not, but in this version, it's really apparent that he isn't on the same set as anyone in that scene. Yeah, it it was so jarring that that was my first thought immediately. I can't remember this, if this was in the original because I would have noticed this before. Um, but I, I, I've looked and the original version of, of season four of Rest of Emma isn't on. It's certainly not on British Netflix. It's not even in uh. the kind of like, you know, subtitles and other bits uh, that I could see. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. They've they've totally George Lucas did in the sense that, you know, they've taken the original version and said, uh if you didn't watch it, you, you were going to make it as difficult as possible for you to actually see it. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. again, is is a weird case of a, a a creator creating their director's cut, or I guess producer's cut, showrunner's cut of a work of art, and essentially saying, yeah, this never worked, <laughs> um, and we're, we're just trying to do our best to kind of fix it, as opposed to what you usually see, which is like light tinkering around the edges, or just kind of like saying, oh, the studio fucked me over and they cut out like two hours of Heaven's Gate and I've put it all back in. Mm, yeah, it's kind of like it feels a bit like with season five of Rest Development dropping on Friday, I think it comes mm. out here, that they're just trying to give people the smoothest transition into that that they can. Yeah. So maybe the idea is... You know that we we just need to get to who killed Lucille too, mm. um, as kind of succinctly as possible. But then, oh shit, there's an ostrich. Yeah, yeah a lot of ostrich imagery, which I had largely forgotten about. Uh, which is it's weird that that became the recurring bit. Also, I'd completely forgotten about Buster's giant mechanical hand. Yes, which uh, shows up quite a bit uh, and malfunctions in kind of entertaining ways. Mm. I had or how also... much they lean on Andy Richter. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. He hasn't turned up yet in in you know, at this stage of my rewatch. Also, I forgot. We, but the, I did get a big belly laugh out of me today. Was Buster dressed as um, Bobby Kennedy <laughs> or, uh, in his little kind of short um, kind of uh, the suit that he wore to, the, to JFK's funeral, and he stops mm-hmm. to salute the soldiers when they run past him, which is even funnier. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some there is some really good stuff in Arrested Development season four. It is just kind of lost in the haze of of them trying to make that situation work, that production situation work, mm. um, which is you know a shame because it's one of the best TV comedies we've been blessed with in this golden age, and it's slowly becoming more bad than good. <laughs> Um, this is season five better kind of turn the ship around better turn the Queen Mary around those guys better start shoveling coal Um, (laughs) um, yeah which got an explicit definition in this version of Arrested Development season four um, which I didn't think existed in the last one no no Uh, 
I, I was reminded of my absolute favourite joke in Arrested Development season four, which is when they reveal that now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been repealed, everyone in the army is gay. Mm-hmm. And then Lucille, one of these soldiers goes to Lucille with a message from Buster, and then she to, she doesn't believe that he's really from the army. And then she says, who was blank replacing in, you know, the on, I can't remember which Broadway play it is, but he says, she basically says, who replaced blank in this? And then he goes, I don't know. I know who he thought he was replacing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is (laughs) a delightfully silly joke. And one of the kind of, one of those great arrested development jokes where the seeds are planted really, really far in advance so that when it hits, it's like, oh, wow, this is, this joke is so much to unpack, but it's really, it's really, really funny in the moment. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. We're going to end this episode of the show as we end all episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about peach call- a peach. <laughs> Not getting to call me by your name. Yeah. <laughs> In which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and which we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Mm, I've had a very kind of uh, kind of fallow period of ingesting culture due to various kind of work business. But I did get to see uh, the latest uh, John Mulaney stand-up special, which mm. you can find on that there, Netflix. It's called Kid Gorgeous at Radio City, and it really does help cement John Mulaney as my new favourite stand-up, given that all my old favourite stand-ups turned out to be sex pests and you know generally just terrible sorts. So I am kind of relatively late to John Mulaney's work, but his stand-up is all thoroughly excellent. And this this um, special, which features um, the revelation that his dad might have murdered uh, <laughs> a child, and also the funniest kind of recounting of the um, stranger danger lesson at school um, with a cop who did not know how to speak to children, but did give them good close combat advice for when they are abducted, not if they are abducted. Um, and you'll also know what to do with your fingers if you manage to punch out a brake light whilst you're being <laughs> held captive in the back of a car. It is an incredibly funny hour of stand-up, and um, you should all watch it. It's very good. Yeah, also, it's kind of incredible that it starts with John Bryan playing piano for him. <laughs> and what, an organ, a big organ. An organ, yeah, doing this kind of mad nightmare carnival music uh which i think is just a sign of the the level that that uh john mulaney is here not only the fact he's in you know radio city where he actually demonstrates he's a really good he's really good at using the space available to him because he runs around a lot mm. and it looks like for someone who is such a kind of a verbal comedian uh, he does a lot of good kind of physical stuff, which made, makes me assume that he must have just been sweating through his whole suit the whole time because he's very active, very active man. Mm, this is his first gag. He says this, oh, is it something like the stage is so impressive that I feel like the man who invented it must be so disappointed that I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines, but yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I'm going to recommend something that we mentioned earlier, which is the now cancelled last man on earth which is a a kind of a wonderfully strange post-apocalyptic sitcoms created by will forte and the aforementioned lord and miller um in happier days when they were able to complete projects (laughs) um Mm -hmm. where uh you know he plays a, a man who is as the title states you know he's the last man on earth he's the survivor of a plague as the show goes along He's not so alone, but his, you know, and a lot of the humour in the show is about him kind of meeting other survivors and then forming this ragtag group of of kind of this ragtag community. And over time, you know, that that community becoming kind of more developed whilst also being at odds with each other. And the the fourth season, which is is now its last, has some really fantastic stuff in it. I'm I'm specifically going to recommend for anyone who wants to kind of sample the show in a uh i would really recommend the three episodes that feature fred armison who uh is introduced in an episode which flashes back to him you know pre-plague pre-apocalypse on a very awkward date which then goes to some very dark and weird places and then when the cast of the show meet him you know in the in the in their present uh, things get weirder and stranger and unsettling, but are also very, very funny. It has one of the best 
Hamilton jokes I've heard in a while, but it's a a particularly great and funny and strange and ambitious show, which I will miss very, very dearly. Mm, Yeah, I kind of watched the first half of the first season, um, Mm. and then one of those things where... I'm, I don't know whether would it have been on a mid-season break or for whatever reason I just kind yeah. of just kind of lost track of it and just never so many more things of kind of fighting for your attention that mm. it's kind of hard to pick back up. But it is all on Amazon Prime in the UK, so it is uh, easily findable if you are interested. Yes, and a, a kind of a, a slight warning for people about it. I think the the first episode is literally the best first episode of any comedy i've ever seen it's absolutely amazing mm-hmm. it then i think has a good run of episodes and then there's like a run of maybe four or five episodes in the middle of the first series where a lot of people dropped off because it kind of hits the same beats over and over again but it really picks up towards the end of the sec the first season and seasons two through four are pretty much impeccable and like i say just wonderfully strange and it's a show that obviously I mean, it lasted four seasons, which is more than most shows this weird last. Uh, it's kind of a miracle it lasted this long. So, you know, ch- check it out. There's only like 67-something episodes, so it's not the heaviest of lifts. Mm. And it is a deeply rewarding show. Yeah, absolutely. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places where you get podcasts. Also, leave us a review and rate us, recommend us to your friends. Those are the best ways to help us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.